0: Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm your host, Diana Baudet. Charter schools have unique governance concerns and audit obligations. Today, I'm joined by CPA Matthew McGinnis and education attorney Matthew Plain to discuss auditing requirements for charter schools. Welcome, Matt and Matt.
1: Thank you for having me this morning.
2: Hey, Diana. Hey, Matt. Good to be with you guys.
0: It's nice to have you both here. Um, all right. So let's dig deep into this topic. There are a lot of questions. So we'll start out first with can you tell us what a financial or fiscal audit actually entails?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for keeping it easy to, to start there. <laughs> so, you know, when you're looking at financial statements for charter schools, they can actually vary quite differently. So, you know, a lot of people when they're looking at financial statement audits, they're focused on the financial statements themselves, and rightfully so. That's what gets you know, the output at the end of the day is everyone's focused on the on a pure financial statements. But there's a lot more that goes involved in that. So there's a lot of auditing of, of underlying financial information and, and supporting schedules that eventually roll up to the financial statements that get produced to make sure they're materially stated and fairly stated for that matter. But really what sometimes gets missed in all of this is the internal controls that we have to evaluate. So we have a responsibility to evaluate internal controls and that can be quite time-consuming. So a lot of times what we'll end up doing is, you know, combing through policies and procedures of, and manuals and, you know, internal control memos at the school just to make sure that there's no gaping holes and in, in the internal control structure is sound. So we'd spend a lot of time doing that, but then also interviewing and meeting with all of the, the school members who have roles in that process to make sure those are aligned. What is being documented on paper is what's being done in reality. So a lot of times, people don't understand the amount of time that we spend in the internal controls. And then really, depending on how the school's funded, they're you know, largely federally funded, sometimes entitlement grants like Title I and the special education money. A lot of schools get nutrition money that flows through federal contracts. If those exceed a certain threshold, right now $750,000, you're required to do a uniform guidance audit. And that is more compliance intensive. So sometimes people don't realize how much work goes into that because we got to make sure that, you know, when you're getting these entitlement grants, they're being spent for what they're supposed to be spent for. So, you know, the audit process is a lot more than just the financial statements. It's financial statements, it's evaluated internal controls, and many times it's compliance, you know, and then lastly, I would say is uniquely the charter schools that follow, you know, certain state funding, every department of the state's elementary and, and secondary education department put out a specific audit guide for schools to follow. And that has a whole new slew of, you know, internal control evaluations and compliance requirements above and beyond the traditional federal requirements. So, you know, needless to say, there's just a ton of work that goes into the financial statement audit other than just the production of of the pure financial statements.
0: Okay. And and just to clarify, that was Matt McGinnis, so that listeners can kind of get used to each voice. And, can you also explain do charter school boards have specific audit requirements?
1: So the charter school boards themselves, so well, I guess we kind of just talked a little bit about that, so each state really puts out its own audit guide and, and they do that, I think to promote uniformity and make sure all the reporting is consistent, both from a financial statement framework but then also internal controls and compliance standpoint. Um, you know every state tends to be a little different in the manner that they go about that, so some states you know, have their own separate charter school audit guide specifically for charter schools that you have to follow. And some states have, you know, a more uniform audit guide, whether you're a charter school, or you're a school district, And then there may be caveats in that if you're a charter school versus school district that you might need to follow, but it's more uniform. So every state's a little differently, not only with the way you financial statements look and feel sometimes as you know, some states, you know, for instance, Massachusetts, where we work a lot, and they have requirements that they treat the financial statements under business type of entities under a proprietary fund, under GASB financial statement frameworks. And that looks and feels more like a traditional nonprofit type of financial statement. Other states follow full on government accounting standards, you know, comprehensive annual financial reporting, where those are more time intensive, and it's traditional fund accounting that rolls up into a school wide financial statement. So it's really being able to understand each state's different financial requirements. And that goes with internal controls and, and compliance as well. Every state's a little bit different in what they want you to test. Everyone has you know, suggested auditing procedures that you know, maps it out for us to understand what our requirements are. But it also gives the schools a good framework to understand that, you know, what's the state looking for at the end of the day when we come in and we kind of do the work that we need to do and report back?
2: Great. Can I add on that? Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. This is Matt Plain. Thank you for that. Matt McGinnis. Incredible overview of what an audit entails and the responsibilities of governing bodies of schools. And I just want to emphasize a few points that you aptly made throughout your comments. And that's that the governing bodies of charter schools, uh, let's take Massachusetts and Rhode Island, for example, uh, they're governing bodies of public schools. And as governing bodies, they have the responsibility for the entire control, care, and management of the school, some of which gets delegated to administration, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with a governing body. And a requirement for both governing bodies in Massachusetts and Rhode Island is to undertake an audit. And Matt McGinnis spoke eloquently about the components of the audit. I'll speak very generally about the legal obligation. Charter schools and the governing bodies of charter schools manage and administer public funds. They're public funds that come from the federal government, state government, local government, but it's largely all public money. When you're using public money for a public function, that you're appropriating authority and you're enabling authority and your authorizer want to ensure that you're using it appropriately. And so Matt used some key words in there like internal controls, consistency, compliance, spent on what it's supposed to be spent on. So when you undertake this process, which is significant, it takes time and energy. It's not just to check off a box, but it's to ensure that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, give you guidance to the extent you need to get back on track, and very importantly, show to the public uh, who's responsible for funding the school that it's being used appropriately. In the Consistency in the particular different types of guidelines that folks use or that different uh, authorizing agencies obligate governing bodies of charter schools to use, they do that so we can compare apples to apples in part and also to ensure that the authorizing agencies and the other state or federal agencies that may look into or local agencies that may look into it, that they can sift through the information uh, with relative ease to ensure again that the money's being used appropriately.
1: Yeah, excellent point
2: there.
0: Can you both tell me for any any more lay listeners like myself, are the audits done annually or is there to be requested specifically?
1: No, you need an independent audit on an annual basis uh, to to meet the charter school requirements. Most charter schools are reviewed every five years. um, so their charter gets renewed, but they also have performance obligations that they need to meet on an annual basis Okay, um, for sure. Okay. Um,
0: maybe we can dig a little bit deeply into the differences, if any, between auditing requirements of traditional public schools versus charter public charter schools.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, and Matt Plain said it a little bit there, they are similar in the way that they are public schools. You know, a lot of times I think that gets overlooked and people think that private schools, because if you think about a charter school, there's an element of being able to have school choice at the end of the day, right? So, you know, if I live in a certain town and there's a couple charter schools, you know, whether or not it's in that town, I have the choice if there's an open seat to choose that charter school, if I deem so. Whereas It's a little different where in a a traditional school district, if I live in X town, I'm going to X public school unless I decide to go to a private school. But what needs to be known is, you know, whether it's a traditional school district or a charter school, as Matt Plant said, it's both publicly funded dollars. And it's, you know, the parents or the, the school kids, they're not paying for the tuition. It's all publicly funded. So that's kind of like a similarity, but they're unique in the nature of the charter requirements. All the school's charters are very uniquely developed. So each charter can look different. And you know, using the example of one charter school in one street and one charter school in the other street can look and feel and run wildly different. Um, And it's really these kind of audit requirements that bring it all together to make sure everyone's doing things from a laws and regulations standpoint, uniformly. So, you know, there's a little difference there. And then, you know, you have your single schools, you have your national network schools that are traditionally run by charter management organizations, or sometimes you may hear CMO, and they're disseminating all of their curriculum to all the varying campuses across the country on the national network level. So there's obviously some differences in the way those are run in your traditional school district. Obviously, from a you know, tuition standpoint, it's a fixed per pupil tuition, so it runs a little differently. But honestly, the, the biggest change, or difference rather that I see is really on the financing of the actual schools themselves. Unlike the school districts where it's your, tax dollars at work, right? Whereas big repairs need to be done at the school level. It's the town budget um, and things of that nature, where for schools, all the financing is achieved at the school level. You know, they're going to have to enter these financing mechanisms. And there are some available for charter schools. You know, we work a lot with the QSCB transactions, those construction school bonds. New market tax credits. A lot of schools are available um, if they're in those qualified census tracks. So there are, you know, financing available for charter schools, but it's it's just different because a normal school district might not have to worry about all the different ways to finance your school and covenants to keep track of. And are you tripping up a covenant because you know you might have had a down year financially? What does that mean? So it just adds a a layer of complexity really specific to those charter schools, kind of like your private business basically. So, and that, and that's a big undertaking.
0: Okay.
2: Matt Plain. Uh, Well, (laughs) a difference I see in Matt McGinnis knows the substance for sure, but something that that I see from a procedural standpoint is with respect mainly to size. So I live in a town of roughly 15,000 citizens and we have six schools and 2,600 students-ish. And that's considered a small district with a f- roughly $40 million budget. And in let's take Rhode Island, for instance, out of our 20-plus uh, independent charter schools. They range in size from you know, 180 to 600 or 700, somewhere in that ballpark. And so the bigger schools... Uh, the bigger independent public charter schools in Rhode Island are going to be less than a 1,000 students, and then probably the average falling in the three to 400 range. Um, So their budgets, because of that, are going to be smaller. Nevertheless, uh, the audit's going to require similar type work because even though the size is different, they're still going to have the same types of line items. They're still going to have internal controls, hopefully, uh, for... (laughs) with respect to each and every component of their finances, they're going to have folks responsible for carrying out particular responsibilities. Uh, They're going to still spend money uh, on the same types of things that a much larger district would spend money on. Uh, It just might not be as much. That doesn't obviate the need to check it to ensure that money is getting spent appropriately.
1: Yeah, and I think you said that Perfectly, and, and sometimes it's not the size. It, the complexity can be different from the size. And you know, if you're a large school district or a you know medium-sized charter school, the complexity could be actually more on the charter school. And it doesn't necessarily matter that you know the dollars might be a lot higher in, in a large school district. The requirements are the same, or, or or more than than a traditional school district. They're so heavily regulated. Um, these charter schools. So just because they're smaller in nature doesn't mean they're less complicated or, or, or less time needs to go into pro- to the production of the financial statements and the results.
0: Is it is it worthwhile to talk about why they're so heavily regu- regulated?
1: Well, I think, you know, I, I'll, I'll let Matt Plain talk in, in a second from a legal standpoint. I just think from, you know, an audit standpoint, it's because they're independently run, right? So they have mm-hmm. more autonomy than, than a traditional school district where they're you know, getting the information from the local school board. Um, it's just more regulated and they need to make sure that they're uniform. So for, from our standpoint, from the audited, audited standpoint, it's a way to get these more consistently done from a financial statement framework, um, as well as evaluation of internal controls um, as well as, as the, the varying compliance requirements from an auditing standpoint.
0: Okay. Matt, do, Matt Plain, do you have anything to add to that answer?
2: Sure, sure. Well, in the grand scheme of things, the charter school movement is relatively new. Mm-hmm. Uh, we f- saw the first charter schools in the country emerge in the early 90s, uh, and the movement really start to take hold in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, so even though it's been some time and we've learned a lot, The evolution of charter schools is we're still in the nascent phase uh, of it. And because of that, that, we're learning legislators, authorizers are learning and we're finding different components that we may need to analyze and regulate. Uh, with more scrutiny or learning that as we scrutinize, then perhaps we can veer more towards a normal public school track for certain components of the delivery of education. So anyway, long-winded way of saying it's fairly new. It's a fairly new way of delivering public school education. So there's going to be more oversight from more different components of government. Whereas in the local school district, you're going to have a local probably school committee or school board that's overseeing the education and that is responsible for the care, control, and management. Like Matt McGinnis said earlier, much of the funding for that is going to be an appropriation uh, from a city or town council from local uh, tax dollars. Whereas in a charter school, the funding for that is going to come from, in many cases, a funding formula in part local dollars, in part state dollars, and in part federal dollars. And because of that, because those dollars are going to the charter public school instead of the traditional public school district, then there tends to be more folks that are taking a look at it. And as the sector evolves, there's folks that are getting... Uh, more comfort with the way in which we're delivering education, and obviously, the movement's growing. So, understandably, there's oversight, understandably, there's scrutiny, and understandably, we're dealing with the variety of challenges that come with delivering education in this. Yeah,
0: okay. In terms of the auditing requirements, are there specific areas that charter schools? face more scrutiny on than a public school might, such as, or a traditional public school, I should say, Um, such as, you know, is building and campus, is there more weight there for a charter school than there is in a traditional district? Or are they fairly even? Are the issues that face each school setting kind of the same?
1: Uh, Yes, Matt McGinnis. I mean, I think they're somewhat similar. I I think where there's more scrutiny with charter schools, as Matt Plain said, that you know, they're fairly new in all of this and the and the audit guides are evolving every year. You know, we talked about a little bit about each state having their own audit guide and they put a new one out every single year. And there's always tweaks for things to focus on because they're never the same because they're so new and they're so heavily regulated. You know, I think one area where there's more scrutiny for charter schools is around their governance and around conflicts of interest. A lot of areas of, to hone in on with related party types of transactions when you're talking about conflicts of interest. So I think there's a lot of scrutiny there for sure. Okay.
0: Are either of you seeing any kind of common oversights or mistakes that are being made in auditing requirements and reporting?
1: You know, for auditing requirements and reporting, I think first and foremost, and rightfully so, you know, there's a large point of emphasis on, on the curriculum and making sure that the students are setting up to succeed at the end of the day, right? That's the, that's the point of the charter school. You know, not to say things get overlooked, and I might be biased as <laughs> the financial statement auditor, but I kind of tend to, to go more towards the financial statements, making sure, you know, the governing body, the, the board of trustees of these independent schools fully understand the financial statements and what goes into them, not even only from an internal standpoint when it comes to, to budgeting and looking at internal financials, but external financials and understanding the revenue streams that are coming in and, and the obligations and the expenses that you need to pay and setting yourself up and setting the school up for success down the road. Because ultimately when the states are looking at your charter for renewal every five years, financials is a big part of it. It's it, you know, it's not just the success of the school and, and the, score, the testing scores. A lot of it is, is the school gonna be open in a couple of years based on your financials? So a lot goes into that. So I would say that sometimes that gets, overlooked a little bit especially around the governance body and, and fully understanding their role as a board of trustees to understand the financial picture of of the organization and how how well they're set up for the future
2: So, Matt playing. I don't get into the weeds of the actual process itself uh, once, once the auditors get the books and get into the school and start looking at internal controls and protocols and things like that. But where I do get involved is in the process for engaging the services of the firm to do it. And a suggestion I would make to the sector is that if you're a new school or if your school has been around for a while, but wants to button up its processes in this regard, i go out to bid for these services. In all likelihood, no matter the size of your school, the audit is likely going to cost an amount of money that exceeds that threshold for public competitive bidding processes. So do that and get competitive bids And then once you do get competitive bids subject to a competitive bidding process, then analyze the proposals very carefully. Obviously, you're going to do this while looking at the the projected cost of the audit, but that alone shouldn't be the sole factor in determining who's going to come into your school and audit your financials. I've seen instances where charter school boards select an audit firm based on cost alone. And I've seen instances where that projected cost changes sometimes drastically because perhaps the folks didn't have the requisite experience to anticipate the volume of work that would go into it because as Matt McGinnis has eloquently pointed out throughout, it's complicated, it's intricate, and it's subject to particular uh, guidelines and oversight. So you want to ensure, obviously, that you get it right. And you want to ensure that you're doing it in a comprehensive manner, and in a manner that aligns with your obligations as stewards of public funds.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's just super important at the end of the day. And, you know, sometimes if you look at the set of financial statements, it might be- You know, seem to the person bidding on it, oh, this isn't too bad. I can bid on this and I can do X price. But, you know, like we've talked about, the financial statements is like the tip of the iceberg. You know, that's just the production of of the financial statements themselves and doing a traditional audit. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes with this evaluation of internal controls and all the compliance requirements from a federal standpoint and a state standpoint. And every state's different. So it's, you really need to understand the provider that is bidding on the work to make sure they have the expertise to perform the audit in the laws and regulations that need to be reported back up to the state auditors department because if not you know you might not have that audit and if the if the state comes knocking and, and you don't have any of those things that you might need there you know you, that could be in trouble for you so you know making sure you you have a provider that understands all of the laws and regulations and understands The intricacies of charter schools is very
2: important. Yeah, I just want to add to that. Thanks for that, Matt McGinnis, that this isn't just a box-checking exercise. This is an extremely important component of your operations. And charter schools in the typical course, Massachusetts through Rhode Island, are evaluated on five-year cycles uh, or at maximum five-year cycles. And when your authorizer, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education in Massachusetts or the Rhode Island Department of Education in Rhode Island, when they're contemplating your renewal, they're going to look at academic performance, the organizational performance or governance, and then the financial sustainability of the enterprise. And the audit is going to be a key component of that. So if it's not adequate, that's going to weigh on the likelihood of you being renewed for a full term.
0: Okay, interesting. So very serious consequences if you don't have everything prepared and documented. So now for my my favorite question of 2020, the it question of 2020, how does COVID-19 impact any of this, if at all? All and everything. <laughs> it seems to hit everything,
1: but... <laughs> it really does. And it's not, you know, there's reporting differences and one-time reporting that Is different now, but obviously now we're we're in a way where schools are making decisions to say, okay, are we going to do some hybrid model? You know, are we home doing virtual learning, homeschooling for some or all of it? And you know, and that poses a whole new set of challenges for teachers, administrators, obviously the students, and, and how that all work gets done. So that's one huge aspect and difference that you know schools haven't been accustomed to before, unless you were an online school traditionally. So, I mean, that's just a big hurdle that they need to overcome and keep going. And then, from a reporting standpoint, you know, obviously there's a lot of resources out there for the schools, the, the CARES Act, you know, some schools got PPP loans, uh, some under scrutiny, just depending on, you know, how those may look in appearance, whether they're double dipping with the PPP loans versus the federal grants that you get and things like that. But schools, were eligible and and did get PPP funds. There's other programs out there, the ESSER funding um, under the CARES Act specific for for schools, which based on the timing of those, those weren't very prominent here in fiscal year 2020. Most charter schools that we're working with currently have a June 30 year end, so it wasn't significant dollar-wise yet. We'll see what's to come here in fiscal year 2021 as I'm assuming a lot of the allocation that are going to schools is going to put them over that dollar threshold from a federal standpoint where we're going to have to go in and audit these as major programs in fiscal year 2021. But certainly COVID's just changed the landscape of not only academically what's happening at the schools, but financially and what's available. And, you know, the audit process is only going to get a little bit more hairy with all these new, you know, resources that are out there and the, the underlying compliance requirements that you need to meet to get those dollars.
0: Yeah. Matt Plain, do you have anything to add? I know we've obviously talked a lot on this podcast about how things legally have been impacted by COVID-19, but is there anything that you're seeing on the legal side related to auditing that's changed with COVID-19?
2: Just the timing. Authorizers have granted extensions to schools to submit things, Mm -hmm. and so things are getting pushed off, understandably, because operations have been interrupted significantly.
0: As schools look to the remainder of their school year, what do you both recommend that they keep a particular eye on in terms of financial information, reporting, auditing requirements?
1: Yeah, you know, in in that regard, you know, first and foremost, it's obviously keeping everyone safe and adapting a plan that enables the school to function appropriately while also keeping the teachers and administrators and, and the students all safe. But, you know, from a financial statement, and we talked about it a little bit before, understanding the various resources out there, like those ESSER monies that are out there now from a federal standpoint, keeping your eye on those. And then with the uncertainties of the the pandemic that we're in now, and maybe not understanding how the tuition dollars may come in in fiscal year 21 and some of the uncertainties there, doing out financial projections out pretty significantly and just seeing how the school may fare during these times. And and running different scenarios to say, "Okay, if this happened, you know, what, we, what may we have to do on the expenditure side to make sure we're still in good financial health moving forward?" so it's really kind of playing out certain scenarios depending on the state that we're in right now and can dramatically change um, depending on a lot of different things and vaccines and whether people are going to go back to school you know full time in person or, or kind of keep this remote environment type of thing. so there's just
2: a lot to, a lot to consider going forward
0: yeah. Thank you. Matt Plain, how about you?
2: Matt covered it. I would just add that in this environment, it takes extra effort to make information accessible to the public. We're not having in-person board meetings. Folks aren't going into buildings physically. We're not making physical copies available. So I would encourage boards and school leaders to ensure that the public can not only access, but consume their information. As they do it, a lot of boards are conducting meetings, or most now are conducting meetings via Zoom or Google Meets or Microsoft Teams or something like that. And that's great. And that's helped us conduct uh, Meets sometimes more efficiently and effectively. We can get quorums easier. Uh, We can do them at different times. More members of the public can show up. It also makes it challenging uh, when the governing body of a school is talking about financial information because unlike an in-person meeting where you'd have copies on a table and an attendee at a meeting can go just pick it up and then follow in real time as the board discussed it, you got to go a couple extra steps to ensure that somebody can do that in a virtual meeting.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because even from the auditing standpoint, you know, traditionally we were in the schools or in the administrative offices doing all of the work. If we need to pull a certain invoice or pull a file, it was right there, you know. Now it's a lot different, and we need to be cognizant of, you know, how we're getting the information and making sure there are secure portals and things of that nature. Because because a lot of it is being done online now, and you can't you can't go to the the school or the administrative office office to perform the audit. So it poses a whole new set of challenges to be able to do this in a remote environment. But I think it's, as long as the school has set up protocols, it has worked, and and I think it got the schools and the leaders to think about processes a little differently too, to make sure that they're set up to be doing a lot of these things electronically and they can approve invoices and they can still have an audit trail of of approvals, but now it's just being done electronically. So a lot of schools are using things like bill.com and other types of platforms that enable them to, to get to the same result, but do it electronically.
0: Yeah, and does that slow the process down a little bit? So they need to actually also build a little bit of extra
1: time in? It certainly can. And it really depends on the sophistication of the school and really where they were previously with electronic documentation. So for some schools, it really wasn't a slowdown at all. For other schools, it was a big learning curve because they had to even invest in certain modules to be able to keep this reporting offline, not only for the, the audit, but just to run their business and their operations. Mm, okay.
0: All right. Well, great. Thank you both, um, Matt McGinnis and Matt Plain. Thank you for joining me today and taking the time out and giving so much valuable information to listeners.
2: Absolutely. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. It was fun. Great seeing you and talking to you, Matt. Absolutely. You as well. Matt
0: McGinnis is a partner at the AAFCPAs in Boston, where he's a leader of the charter school practice and advises charter schools and charter management organizations at every stage of development on real estate, audit readiness, regulatory changes, specialized tax-exempt bond financing, and other tax credit-driven programs. For more information about Matt and his firm, please visit their website at AAFCPA.com. To learn more about Matt Plain, or for more information about the many legal issues charter schools face, please visit our website at bglaw.com, or you can find us on social media by searching Barton Gilman.
1: The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903
2: for more information.
0: Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, The Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.